This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What it do? Hardwood Knox Kitties, I'm Dan Valley coming at you without my co-host Andy Bailey this time. I am, however, super pleased to be joined once again by Bleacher Report's Grant Hughes. We're going to tackle the second half of our best worst contracts from the 2019 offseason. We already recorded our favorite contracts, ergo most team-friendly contracts from 2019 free agency. This one's going to be focused on our worst contracts as the NBA gets through its quarter poll. We're at about the 25-game mark for most of the teams, so this is a good time to to look back and reflect. We also get into the start of trade season, maybe make some Kevin Love predictions or thoughts, introduce some feels. This is a great pod. You don't want to miss it. Follow Grant on Twitter, at GT underscore Hughes. Follow me on Twitter, at Dan Favale. That's F-A-V-A-L-E. Follow Andy on Twitter, at Andrew D. Bailey. The show is at Hardwood Knox. And if you could please continue rating reviewing and subscribing to Hardwood Knox on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'll try and streamline these intros where I'm not begging you as often. We just ask that you subscribe, rate, review to us on iTunes, subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Hardwood Knox. If you've done all those things, please shout outs on Twitter, retweeting the promos that we do for the pod. Always appreciated. Follow the Blue Wire Podcast Network on Twitter as well, at Blue Wire Pods. Last but certainly not least, shout out to this week's sponsor, Watching the Knicks is painful, but talking about erectile dysfunction doesn't need to be. That's where Roman comes in. Go to GetRoman.com slash BlueWire for a free consultation and free shipping, if necessary, on your erectile dysfunction consult. Without further ado, we get to the worst contracts from the 2019 offseason with Bleacher Reports' Grant Hughes. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about it. With a real doctor who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. The doctor will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and again, discreet. Getting started is equally easy. Just go to GetRoman.com slash BlueWire and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Again, just go to GetRoman.com slash BlueWire to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash BlueWire for a free visit to get started. GetRoman.com slash BlueWire. Welcome back, Grant. Good friend, colleague of mine now, Grant. How long have we been working together? Is it like a decade? 
So I always get this wrong because I just, I'm so bad with, with dates and stuff. I think maybe you were here before me. You were at Bleacher Report before me, um, I think. I think it was 2012 for me. So wh- yeah, whatever that gets Report, us. Like early 2011. So that's yeah. Long, still a long time though. What a veteran you are, by the way. We're getting old, though, if we've worked together for, for that long. That's awesome. I know. I know. Um, I'm happy to have you back to talk about the worst contracts, and I'm also happy that you are not did not play a uh, hamstring injury. I appreciate you powering <laughs> through that to come and podcast. Yeah, I don't know if we need to reprise our, our uh, pre-recorded conversation about how old we're getting and how terrible it is, but anyone out there you know, that's getting up there, yeah, you're, we're with you. We get it. <laughs> Um, as a reminder for the, well, not as a reminder, as a criteria for the worst contracts, I'll let you explain how you approached it. We both did it differently, which I think was really cool. The, the thing we talked about though, before we started is that there really are a dearth of contracts that you look at and say, wow, this sucks. And so these are just more in hindsight, the deals that we feel are less than ideal from 2019 free agency. I did tears. Uh, I once again went by team friendliness as I'm sure you did, but we had different criteria. So that's where I approached this from. And then how did you approach it? Yeah, it's kind of similar to, to last time where I think, you know, I'm just sort of a generally more disorganized thinker on stuff like this. So I, I kind of just went with it. I split it into, you know, your high dollar deals, which, you know, the loose cutoff is a nine figure deal if we're counting options and all that stuff. Um, and, and, and ones that are under a hundred million total value and just kind of, and yeah, like you said, you know, there are some that I'm prepared to say are this is an objectively bad deal. But in the majority of cases, you know, my reaction is more along the lines of, well, this is concerning for these reasons, with the understanding that I, I like we don't even need to say, oh, it's early because these were all signed just a few months ago. I think that's sort of priced into all of these evaluations of a lot can change going either direction for good or for ill. Um, But yeah, they're just, for me, kind of split into two chunks. And then, uh, you know, the majority of them, again, are kind of, I think I'll just sort of voice my concerns with the deals, uh, as opposed to, in most cases, saying, you know, this is a huge mistake. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. So where, where did, who did you, who did you start with? Well, so again, this isn't necessarily the deal I, I view as the worst. It's sort of one of the more interesting to me to talk about, um, and that's D'Angelo Russell, which technically was a sign and trade. Um, everybody, I'm sure, is aware of you know the basic machinations of how that worked out with with Kevin Durant going to the Nets and the Warriors. I, I guess you'd say opportunistically getting an asset back, uh, but but that to me is sort of where the the concerns are. And and that's you know to to sort of summarize it. Is D'Angelo Russell an asset at this number? And it's four for 117, which is his max. I think it's 117. Um, and and you know the question is, is a high usage guy? He's up over like 32% usage this year, which is just sort of what he is. Slightly below average true shooting, who does not help you if he's not scoring. Is that guy an asset? And you know I get the case for it uh, from the Warriors' perspective. Like you can get this guy, or you can lose Durant for nothing. And, you know, he's a second overall pick. He's 23. He was a, a quote unquote all-star, you know, last year. I, I, you put all the all the uh, sort of asterisks and quotation marks around that designation that, that you want. He was in the East and was a late addition. But I just the best case to me for Russell's contract is the Warriors, the best realistic case, because I don't think it's going to be true that he fits really well with 
Curry and Clay Thompson when they're back healthy. I don't think it's likely he's the bridge to the post Curry Clay era. He's like the next singular star on the team. Um, that would obviously be the best, best case. But the best realistic case is you get to a point where you have to trade this guy and the whole league knows you don't want him and don't need him. So you're operating from a position of weakness in one of your best case scenarios. And so that's the thing that concerns me most is the just it's so nakedly clear that they made an asset play. He may not be an asset. And the whole league knows that he's going to be moved. And if he is, they don't have to offer necessarily fair value. So that's sort of my long explanation of why I'm worried about the Russell deal. Yeah, and so I initially didn't have him, but I'm going to include him now. So I'm in my tier four that I call relatively innocuous bad deals, just like slightly concerned about. And the Russell, you know, four years, 117.3 million. I don't know if he's going to be worth that, but I'm more coming from this from the standpoint, I think you can move him and get value in return. But is it going to end up being, you gave up, you know, that first round pick they gave to the Nets is not going to convey. So is giving up Iggy and a first round pick and hard capping yourself going to be worth what you end up getting for Russell? Because I have no expectations that he's going to be in Golden State beyond this season. I don't think he'll get moved this year, but I'll be mildly to moderately surprised if he's on the roster next year. And I don't know what you get back for him at this point. Anyone who thinks that should Giannis decide not to go back to the Bucks and the way they're playing as we record this, they might be the championship favorite. So that, that could be a moot point. He's not getting you Giannis Antetokounmpo. I don't even, he's not getting you Bradley Beal either, at least not on his own. You can pair him with the pick they'll have this year. But if you look at where that pick's going to be, let's just say top three, top five in a very guard heavy draft. So you're going to trade for a pick that becomes a guard in addition to a guard on a max contract. What is that? What are you giving up for that? And that's sort of my question there. And then it's, you brought it up. I, I see a path to it working offensively with Steph, Clay and D'Angelo Russell, and then having Draymond there. But then you get into the, the problem of, are there too many cooks in the kitchen? But mostly the defensive issues. The Warriors are right. terrible defensively this year, but I don't even know if you have Clay, Draymond, and a plus defensive center on the court with then Russell and Stephen Curry. I don't know if that lineup gets above league average defensively, if it even gets to the league average. And so that's, that's just more of a contract that I'm fairly concerned about it. I like the spirit of what they did just because he's a sub 25, let's say fringe star because he was an all-star replacement and he had a really good year last year. He can make some difficult shots. And I think he's at least proved that he's not some flash in the pan, but I just don't know what his value then becomes on the open market. And I don't think he's going to net you one of those primary stars that could in theory become available. You know, maybe let's say, let's say Milwaukee moves Giannis Antetokounmpo, which I do not think they will. Let me make that clear. Maybe Russell and that pick can help you get Chris Middleton out of Milwaukee in that scenario because the Bucks are looking to to get younger. I don't know if that's something the Warriors would be interested in. Middleton's a great fit, but you're taking on the final four years of his contract, uh, and that may not look too great at the back end. So that might be the ceiling, though, would be someone like Middleton for what they're going to be able to attach to D'Angelo Russell this summer. Yeah, I, you know, I, this isn't this isn't the the thrust of this this pod, but and and I'm I don't particularly like coming up with trade packages just out of thin air. But you know, the, the stuff about the Timberwolves and Anthony Slater for the Athletic did a kind of a, a had a lot of new information from Russell in, in a recent article about how the Wolves were. I mean capital I in on Russell and ready, you know, like the helicopter ride and all that stuff. Um, so that seems to me like the destination, if you can make that happen. But to me, you look at the Wolves roster and it's like, 
I think what I would want if I'm the Warriors is obviously Robert Covington and you maybe take Teague's expiring deal. And like, you know, that's, that's the basis of your, of your exchange. And I, I don't know. I just, is that enough? Is that who, you know, because Covington is precisely the kind of role player that a team, the, the team, the Warriors hope to be next year would need. Um, but that's just, I mean, that just seems like such a strange exchange to me. So, but yeah, and you've got the, like you say, the first that won't convey that the Warriors can package, but it's just, it's a weird setup. But again, I, I want to reiterate, like, I don't feel comfortable saying it was a bad signing just because like you said, it, it's, it's kind of, it was, it was a, it was a well thought out, I guess, play. I, I think the question is whether you agree with what the Warriors thought, uh, you know, and that, that's sort of what it comes down to. Yeah. And so I'm just, I'm right with everything you said. And look, there's still value in, in having him. He's hitting, you know, 33.3% of his pull-up triples on a Warriors team that is not built to get him good shots to begin with. And so that number could be much lower if he's a worse player. I'm not saying it's a good number, but for where the Warriors are this season. Uh, before I hand it off to you for your second one, I wanted to note my notable exclusions from this, the, the players that I'm not going to talk about. Robin Lopez, I don't think it's a good fit in Milwaukee. Playing better of late, good rim protector for them. He's cut down his turnovers in the post. I just don't, I don't know if it was worth it to give him a deal where you needed to give him the player option. I know the CBA and the requirements, minimum length of deals, but now he has this player option. I don't know how much he actually helps your team. That was some, that was someone I considered. And then I'm not going to include Harrison Barnes's deal. I don't think he's necessarily properly paid, but four years and $85 million for a guy who's once again scoring well in ISO, but will also run the break and hit spot up threes and isn't a decided net negative defending the three or the four. I think there's at this point unsung value in him where it was, he was buried in Golden State, probably rightfully so. And then he goes to Dallas and he sort of miscasts as a number one option, doesn't get to the free throw line enough to really be the hub of an offense, doesn't pass enough. Now he's sort of in the perfect role with Sacramento and he's been playing well overall. So those are the two, mostly Barnes. I don't think people would necessarily expect to see Lopez, but Barnes is the contract that I think a lot of people would point toward. And he's not someone that, you know, I looked at him, but he's not someone that I ultimately considered to include in one of my four tiers. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned Barnes because I didn't include him either, even though I think everybody kind of blanched at the the number initially when he signed it. But but also the deal declines in value every year. So I think at the end of the deal, his final year is going to be like $18 million, which is about right because he'll be on the wrong side of 30 by then. And And like you say, he's just kind of pretty good at everything. And the other thing, too, is Sacramento's money doesn't go as far as other teams in free agency. So right. price that in. They traded for him the year before, so they kind of had to pony up. Otherwise, they did that deal for almost nothing. And like he just is a guy that if ever there are going to be problems in Sacramento, and there, there historically always have been, they will never be coming from him because he's just the most solid guy, the most solid – he's a solid guy, solid player – I don't know that he's a solid value, but it's close enough to where, I mean, I didn't really even consider him. Whereas I think over the summer, he probably was showing up on a lot of, you know, worst signings lists. So I, I think we agree there. Um, I think I'll jump to, again, this isn't like, oh, this is my second worst deal, but it's the one I'm maybe the most interested in talking about. And that's Kyrie Irving. Um, it's kind of popular, I guess, to pile on him. And I think I even teased this on the last pod we did, but like the best argument you can make for him, four for 142 with a player option, by the way, um, the best argument you can make is that he got you Kevin Durant because that was sort of an understood package deal. But 
what what's Kevin Durant going to be? I'm not putting Durant on here because he's Kevin Durant, but post Achilles is always dangerous. He's not going to play this year, so that's flushed down the drain that year of value. Um, you know, so I don't know if if that alone is enough to justify signing Irving in light of the fact that he's injured again. He's got these crazy Instagram things. Every word that comes out of his mouth is like, you know, he uses 10 words when one would do and very few of them make sense together. He seems difficult to get along with throughout his career. I don't think that's controversial. Um, I just, you know, and going back farther, the only thing we know for sure about Irving as a player is that he is capable of being the second best player on a championship team if the first best player is LeBron James. And I think that's true of like 50 guys in the league. So I, I just don't know if it's worth it, especially if the best argument you can make for having Irving on your team, and, and even though the Nets got, got uh, they lost last night, I think we're recording this on a Thursday, um, they're like nine and four since he's been hurt. And Spencer Dinwiddie looks great, like he always does when he's, you know, when he gets more minutes. I don't know if we know that Irving makes your team better on, on balance. So that's kind of my take on it. It's a lot of money to invest in a guy with a ton of questions. Um, but I'd be curious to see where you fall on that before you get to to your next, uh, maybe your worst deal overall. I think it was definitely a risk, but I'm okay with the Nets betting on their culture when you know that Irving now has chosen you, where he didn't really choose Boston or even choose Cleveland in that second contract, just because we know how those work. And then he's still really good. Like when he's, right. when he's healthy, he's probably close. Last year, for most of the regular season, he was a top 10 player. He's probably top 15, uh, top 20 at worst overall. And so I'm fine with them making that bet. I also, th- what they're doing without Levert and Durant in Brooklyn and Kyrie Irving, of course, is incredible. I don't know how much value there is in that in the playoffs. What Irving does, I think, uh, increases tenfold in value once you get to the postseason because, look, he over dribbles. He takes, he makes shots harder than they have to be, I feel like, when he's around the rim. But that's someone who is just really tips the scales in your favors of a playoff series where defenses have more time to adjust. They're going to commit more focus to the stars and he's going to get those buckets from scratch. And then you look at the fit with Kevin Durant, you have to assume again, because they chose to play with each other, that it'll be a little bit easier to, to strike a balance. And so I'm not as concerned. The, the thing that would bother me the most is the injuries, as you said, because yeah, he's had these knee problems for a while. Now is this, is what he's going through right now, is that a harbinger of what's to come? Or are the Nets just playing this super cautious? Because not that they viewed this as a gap year, but you know Durant's not playing this season. And yeah, you're going to make the playoffs anyway. So how much value is there in like burning out Kyrie Irving or risking further injury when this isn't the year that you're going to legitimately contend for a title? Yeah, I think too, I, I agree with what you said. I mean, just if you look at the numbers, Irving can make your offense unstoppable for long stretches of playoff games against whoever you want to throw at him. I guess to me, and this is a convenient argument to make because you sort of don't ever need to quantify it. I just have reservations about sort of how is this team going to hold together if the the loudest voices in your locker room are Irving, who we've seen preside over locker rooms falling apart, and Durant, who it's becoming clearer and clearer was a really tough guy to sort of manage emotionally last year and maybe for most of his career. Um, I just wonder if, and again, you know, signing Irving was partly because you're going to get Durant. Maybe the Nets would probably, the Nets would have done it either way just to get the talent. But I have major concerns about just when this team is at full strength, what, what's the vibe going to be? I just, I'm really concerned that it's not going to be great. 
Yeah, I think, again, I think that's a fair concern. It's going to be, I can't wait to see them next season, just see how everything plays out. Because even in Boston, there wasn't an issue with Kyrie during the first year. Everything seemed happy-go-lucky. He said he was going to resign. Uh, and then, look, there's the personal personal off-the-court problems that he alluded to, or didn't allude to, spoke about leading into the yeah. season. And the coverage of him and some of the players in general has always made me just a little bit uncomfortable. And it's, I don't know if you saw a thread I did on Twitter a while ago. It was like a 13-tweet thread, uh, so it was obviously bad. But <laughs> we have such unnerving access to what's going on in these players' lives now where they're willing to, where sources, I don't fault the reporters like Jackie Mack for getting them. If anything, it's a testament to their connections. They can get these stories. But knowing that Kyrie Irving was kind of sulking um, when the Nets were in China and that there was this ordeal when they were going to take a team picture, it's that just that makes me uncomfortable. And then it also makes me uncomfortable to say, well, clearly he's dealing with some type of anxiety or depression because if he is, if he's going to come out and say it, that's fine. But if not, kind of diagnosing from afar, it robs players of, of agency in itself. So it sort of works both ways. And I'm on Twitter. I'm not trying to be on a soapbox here. I pointed out in that thread, I make jokes all the time. I tend to think that my humor is above crossing that line. And I also think the jokes have to continue. And I think players like Kyrie could do themselves a huge service by leaning in to the meme culture, if only to deaden its impact. I'm not saying that you have to appreciate our jokes, but if like they're going to get way more engagement than, than we will, if he was posting memes about himself on Twitter or something kind of, or Instagram mocking the whole idea of the earth is flat or his deep think Instagram post, I think that would go over really well. And so I have just trouble balancing the, yes, I'm actually concerned about what Kyrie does to the dynamic of a, a team emotionally, culturally. But then I also am like, I don't know this guy personally. And so I would argue that no reporter really does. They could have covered him for years. And so to to pass these judgments on guys that has nothing to do with really basketball, at least functionally, it, it makes me, again, it makes me uncomfortable. I say all this also knowing that I have made jokes on Twitter. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's all. I think I agree with all that. And and again, I, we should just underscore again that like we're coming at this from a team perspective. So when, when, so when I'm talking about I'm concerned about Irving's effect on a locker room, I have no I, – I hope that doesn't come across as um, like I have no understanding of what is causing his effect on the locker room or what he's going through personally. All I know is that there have been a lot of reports of his locker rooms not being great. And so that's kind of as far as I think we're allowed to go with our, if you want to call it judgments, but yeah, this, it's a team perspective. It's sort of from the, from the organization's point of view, uh, for anyway, as far as I'm looking at it, what's the level of concern I should have for this contract? And I think you can price, you can build that stuff into it. Here's a question for you, just mm -hmm. in a vacuum, let's say you still got Durant and thinking about what the team is going to look like moving forward. If you're the Nets, would you have rather had D'Angelo Russell on his deal or Kyrie Irving on his deal? That's such a tough question. Um, I guess everyone's going to think I'm insane for even hesitating um, because I think Russell I don't, I, I don't know. That's a really good question. I have to think a lot harder about that. Russell, to me, is a floor raiser, whereas you probably make the argument that Irving is a guy that gets your ceiling higher, but the risk is so much greater. Um, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's, I think it's interesting that that's uh, a, a question you'd really have to think about. Do you have a firm stance on that? I still think it would be Kyrie, but it's closer than you think because I do feel like it's easier to fit D'Angelo Russell inside a collective dynamic. And maybe maybe that's wrong, but 
uh, I just knowing that you're going to have Kevin Durant there. We also have to think about post Achilles Durant. Is he still going to be even 85% of the player he was? Because if he's just, I don't want to say a shell of his former self, but if he has to take like predominantly catch and shoot opportunities, he's still going to be an all-star because he can shoot over anybody. But then that increases the, the utility of Irving because he's better at creating from square one than D'Angelo Russell is. Yeah, I think just on court, you can almost look at D'Angelo Russell as like, if if Kyrie is a 10 at what he does, Russell's like a, a 7.9 or something, you know what I mean? Like yeah. they're they're not that dissimilar, really. Irving's much more dynamic, but in terms of what you get, um, I think they're they're actually kind of quite a few parallels in their games. My next relatively innocuous bad deal is Bobby Portis. The only reason it's innocuous is because it's a two-year, $30.8 million deal with a team option uh, on the, the second season, which I guess the Knicks might consider picking up, but they would be crazy to do so at this point. He's shooting under 34% from from three. He doesn't pass enough out of the post or on his drives to be a featured option. He's allowing opponents to shoot 65.7% at the rim, which is actually an improvement above last year's 71.8% mark. He's just bad. And yeah, he can give you some floor spacing sometimes. We need to get rid of the Bobby Portis post-ups in general, he, I, I just don't, they, they went overkill when you look at, I know we don't like to get tethered to positionality right now, but they went overboard with just putting these hybrid four fives on their roster. And he's, if you can argue that there was a signing that went too far, it was his probably more so than Taj Gibson, because at least he gives you a little bit of defense, some, some leadership. Um, that's not Bobby Portis's role. And he's just probably because they signed all these short-term contracts, he more so than anyone on the roster right now is the symbol of how grossly they mismanaged their cap situation after they whiffed on the stars. Because why did you need to give this guy this contract? He's not tradable, even at this number, unless you're taking back bad money, which you've kind of made it clear that you're not going to based on what you did this offseason, because you're always going to fancy yourself a free agency player, or maybe you don't want to take money that leaks into 2021 because of the the Giannis Antetokounmpo sweepstakes. So he's, it's relatively innocuous in the sense that you have the get out of jail free card after this season, but why give him such a high number? Why sign him at all? It was a question we were asking then about him and about some of the other guys on the roster, but it pertains or is more relevant to him now than, than anyone else on the Knicks team. Yeah. I mean, I think the fact that in my write-up that I did to get ready for this, I, I kind of just put the Knicks and, and didn't really know <laughs> It's kind of, a, obviously, it's it's an oversimplification, but yeah, I mean, Portis is there. I guess you'd say maybe Morris is the best of the signings they made. I mean, Randall's probably the best player, but his fit with, with Robinson is so bad that he's kind of, I mean, all these guys stunt the growth of the young players if you believe growth would have been possible under any circumstances on the team this year. Um, but they all kind of lump together to me. I just, you know, I think for virtually all the deals they signed, you can say, well, you know, they put team options or they put partial guarantee. You know, they they did well, kind of like the Kings did, who another active offseason team, where they sort of limited their exposure by shortening deals in a lot of different ways. But you know, it just it, it just I don't I don't really have a lot to say about the Knicks that hasn't been said. I think everyone agrees that their offseason was a mess, and all these deals are 
overpays and they get in the way of younger players and what was the point of all this and don't don't you dare try to tell me that this was the plan all along or that it was a sensible pivot from you know their bigger uh, aspirations so yeah i don't have anything to add to that but since i mentioned the kings um i i imagine you know there are several deals that is a lot like the the knicks but to me trevor ariza just seems kind of done um and that you know he's two for 25 the the second year of the deal is is a partial guarantee and so you know how bad can it really be but look like i get that you want someone who can defend bigger wings in theory because you want to put barnes at the four a little bit uh even though they have a lot of front court guys so barnes has been playing a lot of three and but like the guy's been in the league Ariza has since he was 19 so he's 34 but he's an old 34 and watching him this year he just you know it, it, he doesn't he's not asked to do a lot if he can make open threes and defend I think he'd be fine but I just don't think he can do that anymore and so now you're kind of it's it's about as close to dead money as you can get uh without it just being completely dead so I'd be curious to know what you thought about some of the other King signings too, if they made your list, but Ariza kind of, kind of stood out uh, in their off season to me. Oh, they all, the other, the Corey Joseph and Dewey Dedman signings will be making an appearance. I actually did not pick Ariza, but the way you framed it, I think you can easily argue that he's kind of their version of Bobby Portis. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. My last tier four member of their relatively innocuous category. This is an upgrade for him from where I originally had him because he started <laughs> the season so poorly, but Tobias Harris, not quite max money, five years, $180 million. You can easily justify it if you're the Sixers because you have, in theory, championship-level talent around him, so you can afford to overpay what's slated to be, let's say, your third best player. Uh, he's also perked up of late. He's uh, over basically the last almost month. He's slashing uh, 50, 41, 81. That's good. He's brought up his just crunch time efficiency, uh, he is shooting five of 25 on pull-up triples. There was also one point this season where he went five games without making a three. And so that's why it's just, this is a contract to keep on the concern level because I don't know if it's as eminently movable as some of the other ones that are not are on the same scale because not as many players got this five-year deal. I think he might've actually been the only one now that I'm thinking about it. I'm trying to think of who else signed a five-year contract over the summer. I don't think anyone did. No, nothing comes to mind immediately. I, I, so uh, it's interesting that you brought up Harris because I, I have him on here too, but I, I, the, the concern that you have with a deal like this for a player like Harris, or at least that I do is I, like, I always ask like, isn't there somebody who could do, you know, 75% of what Harris does for like a quarter of the money? And, you know, then you go through the list and look at the guys that, you know, he's basically a scorer. He's probably the worst defender in there. He's definitely the worst defender in their starting five, but it's a great defensive starting five. So that's okay. It's just the role that you need him to fill. I think you could get somewhere else. But like you said, you can't just mess around and go try to find that guy if you're seriously trying to win a title that year. So I sort of get it. The question that I have for you is, is... Can you say almost all of this about Chris Middleton? Now the differences are significant in that oh, you know you've a got a deal. That's a good point. Yeah, okay. yeah, no, and it's I think one seventy eight, so it's a pretty good comp. Um, I think I think Middleton might be the better player, and you've got the concerns about well, Giannis needs to see us paying guys, especially after we didn't pay Brogdon. But I, I wonder how you view Middleton versus Harris, because to me it's they're kind of similar in terms of you know money, stage of their career, value to the team. Um, but somehow Middleton's deal doesn't seem as 
concerning as Harris is, but I don't know if that's a fair way to look at it. No, I, I think it is fair because, look, Middleton's the better defender and passer, so that's going to help to begin with. Uh, Tobias Harris is a little bit younger, and that's sort of the appeal of this deal is that it only runs through his age 31 season if he finishes out the entire thing. So you don't have to worry about him not being in his prime, but Middleton feels more plug-and-play in the event that he needed to be the third or maybe fourth best player on a championship team. And I, I guess you could go reverse course, though. Is Middleton going to be the guy that can create from scratch for you um, in those crunch time situations, if let's say Giannis is locked down for some reason, that might also be why it seems better because Giannis is so much harder to game plan for than any of the Sixers' best players. I don't look, Joel Embiid can be dominant, Ben Simmons is, is good. They're just more schemable than Giannis Attentacupo is at this point, especially when he's averaging more than five three point attempts per game. And so that probably helps Middleton's deal reflect better than, than it would for Tobias Harris. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to think about if if you just put a player more like Middleton, if you just put Middleton on the Sixers, like who, who like you said, can has more ball skills, can pass the ball, can break his guy down a little more and kind of make, you know, those make reads a little more effectively than Harris can. I, I think Middleton actually would be the better fit. Um, whereas, you know, actually Harris has been on the Bucks before because he's been on every team. But um, <laughs> it's interesting to see, you know, Middleton is like, well, but then think of it this way, too. Middleton has to be Milwaukee's second best player, basically, whereas Harris only has to be the Buck or the Sixers, what, like third, fourth, fifth guy. So, I mean, in terms of value, I guess Middleton is sort of carrying a heavier load for what you're paying him. But it's also not a great sign that Middleton is your second best player. I, I, it's, I don't know, it's an interesting comparison to make. Yeah, and it's the other thing about Tobias Harris is you sign him with the expectation that he's going to give you that face-up crunch time weapon, and he hasn't done that. His usage no. rate is actually lower in crunch time slightly than his overall usage rate, and it's I believe it's fifth on the team last time I checked. Now, there's a lot of just small sample noise in there. He has guys like Trey Burke and Mike Scott in front of him. Oh, it's fourth on the team that I bring it up. Joel Embiid is number one, which I guess is fine in a vacuum, but there's such a gap between Joel Embiid's usage in crunch time and Tobias Harris's, and you were kind of hoping that he – wasn't going to replicate what Jimmy Butler could do, but that was your best bet at getting this perimeter face-up weapon in the clutch. And you've leaned on Joel Embiid to do more of that stuff than you have Tobias Harris. Right. Yeah. Do you have, uh, are we in your fourth tier? Or are we into your third yet? I'd like that to hear was, you have next. That wrapped up my tier four. Uh, I have tier three, which is classified as fairly problematic. I have Al Farouk Aminu. I'm just... I like him. I hated him from the moment he signed his deal <laughs> with the Orlando Magic. They were a team that had enough long defenders who are non-shooters. And he's probably been more of a shaky shooter. He knocked down 35.3% of his trays in the previous four seasons. But he devolved into unplayable last year during the playoffs for Portland. And he's he's another guy who's just really schemable in the postseason. And now you compound his his issues with uh, the torn meniscus in his right knee, you know, the back end of this deal, three years, $29.2 million, those final two years could end up looking pretty rough. And if he's not the same player defensively when he comes back, I don't know that that's a deal that you can easily move until its final year. And so then you're stuck with him not only through this season, but through next season as well. And it's, it's a situation where if this were a contract on another team, and obviously if he were healthy, I might've been okay with it, but because it was the magic and then because it looked as bad as it did in in practice that it just it was compounded by that and 
you you paid him the mid-level money to log under 25 minutes a game like that's that doesn't make sense to me either and so just everything it's not the worst deal by any means uh, but just because of the liability he's become on offense he's shooting 32 percent on two pointers this year and now you throw in the injury it's just a really or excuse me fairly problematic deal yeah, I mean, yeah, Aminu made, I, I agree. Aminu is not the worst deal, but I, I, he's on my list too. And I, I think that from the moment that that reports came out that the Magic had signed him, it was probably from a fit perspective, the most head-scratching deal because, you know, or, or Orlando has flaws, but but one of them is not forwards who are better on defense than offense that like can't really do a lot with the ball because that's that's one thing they have like that's what the magic sort of specialize in and like if you're looking to you know I I don't know what the thinking is basically because maybe maybe you're thinking okay well John Isaac's going to be a center he's going to make that transition this year which which is blocked by Vucevic signing 100 million dollar deal which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point um, but then you've got Aaron Gordon who does kind of a lot of what Aminu does, but maybe a little bit more and you still, there's just, it didn't make sense. I don't know why they needed him. The thing that's unfair to Orlando is that like, they also made basically the opposite type of player signing with Terrence Ross in a, sort of an all offense, no defense, more of a wing than a true forward, obviously more of a two for that matter. But like, I would also put that up as a bad deal this summer. So I don't know. The Magic kind of whiffed with two very different swings. So I wonder what they could have done that would have satisfied me, but it was not either of those two deals. Thomas Sadoransky ended up signing for a little bit more, but he got similar money and he would have been a much better fit for Orlando than Aminu is. Yeah, I don't think we talked about him on the good signings, but I like that one too. Yeah, that was, I guess, the Bulls is what you just really chalked that up to. And look, if he shot more, I'd be more inclined to call it a bargain, but he doesn't. Yeah, that's fair. Um, let's see, who else do I have? Oh, well, let's talk about Vucevic. Um, I don't know where he'd fall on your list, if at all, but to me, um, one, you pay, you're paying for a career year, which is always kind of a risky proposition because he was never as good as he was last year, and he's at a point in his career where like, maybe he could come close to that again, but but he's been injured for – he's had a sprained ankle that's kept him out for a long time now, so we're not sure. I just think it's a safe bet to say that you're paying a guy – for production you're just not going to get going forward and like i i get that he's a very productive offensive center and and you know maybe that's worth something but he is a center and he does sort of you know the questions about him are still on defense even though they've kind of you know dissipated a little bit as his career's gone on and the magic do have had a good defense with him in there um i just look at it like well, Jonas Valanciunas got $45 million over three years, and those two guys per 36 numbers are awfully similar. Um, aside from Vucevic is a better passer, he's got higher volume on his three-point shooting. But just, you know, you're paying a center who's really still mostly a one-way guy for a career year, and that career got you 42 wins. Um, I just, I have a problem with it, especially since too, you you know John Isaac's going to be a player. I, maybe I'm way too, you know, off the deep end for Isaac, but I think there's a pretty good consensus that that guy can be a defensive anchor at the five eventually, if he's not right now. Um, you, you still drafted Mo Bamba, and I don't know that you should make organizational decisions around the development of a guy who may not develop, but that's also a consideration. I just, I have a hard time with the Magic spending like this at a position that's been devalued for a ceiling that just doesn't seem very high. 
yeah, I didn't include him in mine, but I, I get the logic. And I know there's a human element to this where you can't just lowball anybody, but who was giving him $100 million? Right. And so I just, I, I feel like Orlando underplayed its leverage there. And I'm always leery about, he seems like the, I don't want to call him the DeMar DeRozan of centers because he's a more well-rounded player than DeRozan is, but he's he's a floor raiser is really what he is. And to pay $100 million for that, is kind of risky. So I, I totally understand the inclusion. I think it helps that I, you could see him return to an all-star level if they got better floor balance around him. But to invest that much money in him when you kind of looked at his numbers last year and had to know he was primed for, for regression, that was a little bit puzzling. And then as you pointed out, they have, I would argue, four other guys. They're not better at playing center, but they can play center, where I would love to see Isaac small ball five. Ditto for Gord. And then you have Bamba and Ken Birch, who is pretty good. Doesn't really do much for you on offense, but he can defend rather well. So it, it was just to invest that much money, even though he's your best player, it just could the deal have been shorter or something? Like Right. It, it's it's one of those things where I, I'm glad you mentioned the human element. Like I think it's true that had Orlando taken a harder line, I just don't know where a bigger a, a comparable deal was coming from on the market. I don't think there would have been one. But then you risk pissing off the guy that was your best player a year ago could potentially be your best player going forward, though. I still think that's going to be Isaac. Um, and then, you know, maybe you just lose him for nothing. Obviously, since I'm saying it was a bad deal, that's not that unpalatable of an alternative to me, but the optics would have been bad. And, you know, maybe the magic really did believe that there was another step to take with Vucevic as a centerpiece. I don't know if I agree with that, but I, you know, the human side is a factor where, you know, they kind of had to, do right by him and maybe that sends a message to the rest of the league that we pay our guys in Orlando but I'm always kind of skeptical of how much that sort of thing really matters in the long run yeah the only team that springs to mind because the only center that really got paid is Kristaps Porzingis or let's just say like big man who got paid paid was Kristaps Porzingis I guess Atlanta could have been a threat but they kind of took themselves out of the buy now running before free agency even started yeah it didn't seem like that type of player was really gonna was on their radar yeah, so I don't. I honestly don't know what Orlando was thinking there or why it. And it, it came to terms pretty quickly. So good for Vooch getting his money. Anything even shorter, same pay scale, shorter money. You look. You know what? Three years and a hundred million dollars might have been a little bit less risky for this team when you just look at the aggregate. Because now you're just locked into him for three years at a number that's not easily easy to move. Yeah, right. And and you know, I think Isaac's going to be ready in three years anyway. So at least you kind of clear the decks by then too, because you're going to have to pay him too. Yeah. Um, my next inclusion, I'm still in the tier three, fairly problematic. I have Terrence Ross. <laughs> We're just going to go through the entire Magic roster. There you go. Apparently, I I think you can argue that look, his shooting is stabilized a, a little bit, but he is another guy who's regressed off of his. Uh, career year where he's not this viable pull-up three-point shooter right now they're not getting a lot of pick and roll usage out of him like they were last year and that becomes a real problem now four years 54 million with 50 million guaranteed that's you know like that's a pretty big number I know you have to pay shooters but they paid this guy like they knew they were going to be not just a fringe playoff team in the east but they were going to be entrenched in that postseason picture and the fact that they haven't been you know, that's not great for them. And and while he's been shooting better uh, overall in recent weeks, he's still at 32.3% um, from three-point range. He's not someone that's going to make a lot of plays for others when he's driving the ball in the basket. Doesn't get to the rim enough um, to be a factor at the free throw line either. Just a very, it's a deal that I think you could 
defend in the moment, like like the Vooch one probably, but in hindsight, it's one that doesn't look so hot. Yeah, I think you made me realize that, you know, the, I think because of some of the Magic's younger talent, there is a chance that they meet or exceed what they did last year, but it will have almost nothing to do with all of the guys that they re- that they signed this summer. So, like, it, all of these deals that they've signed, I think, will be sort of incidental to the team improving, which is not a great sign that you uh, spent your money very wisely. Nope. Who do you have next? Let's see. I, I, I'm i going to try to stay minor, so I don't want to save some of the big ones for later. Um, I mean, DeAndre Jordan, right? Like, it's I, we all know, four for 40, we all know the the sort of, he was part of the deal with, with Durant and Irving, or at least that's been strongly insinuated. I mean, he's, one, uh, if, if a center is making $10 million a year, I think in this day and age, and he's the type of center that Jordan is with, you know, no stretch, uh, scores within two feet of the basket or not at all. Um, you've got to be pretty darn good. Uh, so because the market just, it, you just can get that guy for close to the minimum. Honestly, the thing is Jared Allen is a lot better than Deandre Jordan is. I think he's clearly shown that in the time that Irving's been out and he's kind of increased his role. And so I, I just, I don't know. It's, it, it's the whole Nets thing is kind of of a piece to me because the three big signings that they made are very much connected. And if you're going to say that one of them was a mistake, you kind of have to think about it in terms of, well, then this whole deal doesn't happen. This whole, you know, summer is different if, you know, we can't carve out 40 million for Jordan and get Irving and Durant. But um, I just don't think there's a case that Jordan is worth 10 million a year. And then four years, like, what are we, why are we going that long? Couldn't we have negotiated a little bit on that one? Um, Good for Jordan getting one more deal, I think, before, uh, and for a long time before he's not going to command anything close to that. But um, that one didn't make a lot of sense to me for the Nets. Yeah, he's, I'll talk about him too, because he's in my tier two. I haven't quite finished my, oh, I did finish my tier three. So that's perfect. I'll go to him in my tier two, which is not great, Bob, uh, <laughs> is my classification for that. Four years is a long time. That's just everything yeah. you said. And look, the Nets' net rating is 13.5 points per 100 possessions worse with him on the floor. Uh, they're 11.1 points per 100 possessions worse on offense. He doesn't give you the same optionality that Jared Allen does, who can, you know, throw up some flip shots. Um, You can at least, you know, his three-point shot has not come along, but you can station him further from the basket. Uh, he's a better post-up weapon, has a, has a hook shot, and he's he's the better defender at this point. And one of the reasons you got DeAndre Jordan was so that he could really tussle with those burly, brawny bigs that were overpowering Jared Allen. He began the season by just getting roasted by guys like Domanis Sabonis. And so if that's why you signed him, in addition to because Kyrie and uh, Durant wanted him there, I think you were even being kind by saying it was inferred. I think it's just a flat-out fact. Yeah. At this point, it's I just don't think it's panned out. And then even if you're fine with how he's been playing, because I think individually his numbers are okay. He's grabbing a lot of boards. He's been okay as a rim protector, as a rim roller. That's all fine. But if the team is worse with him on the floor, that's an issue. And then also just <laughs> just just the length. Four years is is a really 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 long time. And Jared Allen is extension eligible after this season, so you're going to run into a point where not next year, but for the final two years of Jordan's deal, you're theoretically going to be paying both Allen and Jordan. And depending on what Allen commands, because the big mark, the big man market is so wonky. Is it a stretch to say you're going to be paying him and Jordan a combined $30 million at one point over those final two seasons, where it would say like, he's going to get between 15 and 20 million in, in an extension or in restricted free agency. That's not, you know, the best 
allocation of resources to me. And it has nothing to do with what Allen might command. Maybe he even gets more than that. That's when you start really running into some issues. But I don't think you need to pay. And I, I hate to do this because there's a human element there, like we just talked about. I, I don't think you need to pay your backup big man, especially now in the eight figures per year. I think, I think too, if you zoom out and you say, okay, if the Nets are going to become the, the type, the level of team that obviously they think they can with two you know, high-end superstars, again, this is from their perspective. I already made my kind of feelings on, on Irving and to some extent Durant known. But if you're going to get to that level, you know, and, and again, having Dinwiddie on a, on a good deal and having Karis LeVert on a good deal, I think mitigates this. But you just can't have a situation where you are you're overpaying a, a significant amount for a position that's not really helping you. You really need the opposite to be a title contender. Like you look back at some of the Warriors teams, you know, the real crux of how they came to be was Steph Curry was making like a fraction of what he was worth. And Clay Clay Thompson took less and Draymond Green took less. And they had guys that were contributing like Sean Livingston that weren't making much and David West on the minimum and all this. You need that kind of stuff. If you're overpaying, even by, you know, maybe not a ton, $40 million, 10 a year is not crazy. But if you're going to be a title threat, it's really hard to do it. It makes it harder, I should say, to do it if you've got this kind of deal on the book. So, like, the impact can actually be much worse than just, quote-unquote, 10 million bucks a year. Yeah, I'm totally with you. Did you have another name to throw out there? Or are you running out of names and I should pivot to my next one? Well, I, we already talked to Kings. I have Dwayne Dedman on there. Um, made a lot of sense at the time, and it's another one with a partial guarantee on the third year. Um, I just think now, looking at it in hindsight, and we talked about Rashawn Holmes on the last podcast that sort of off, more than offsets paying Deadman a little too much. Um, three for 41 are the numbers. But like looking back at it a little bit, Deadman's value really is in the idea that he could be a, a floor stretcher at the five. And we really only had two years of kind of low to moderate volume to verify that because he wasn't a three-point shooter until really two seasons ago to the extent that you'd sort of base your signing of him on. And so the fact that he isn't hitting threes and is just not playing hardly at all anymore, um, at least in any kind of significant role, um, maybe that should have been a little more foreseeable than than maybe we all thought. Because I think just about everybody was like, oh, Deadman makes sense. You know, he's the kind of guy that could really help the Kings. But looking at it now, maybe we should have been a little more critical of that uh, in July. Yeah, I have him on mine, so I'm going to actually save him. Uh, my take's there, but I agree with everything you said. My next inclusion in my tier two of the worst contracts, not great, Bob, for anyone who already forgot. Um, this is an upgrade for this player. You talked about him and how pleasantly surprised you were about his contract. Terry Rozier. Yeah. $56.7 million. It's still not a good contract, but he is helping the Hornets on offense. And he's playing pretty hard on defense. He's shooting 49% on catch and shoot threes. Can't hit a pull-up jumper to save his life. I think he was always kind of a little overrated in that aspect, the extent to which he might be able to create for himself. The Hornets are uh, averaging almost 114 points per 100 possessions when he shares the floor with Devontae Graham. Uh, Their net rating is minus 3.1 in those minutes because their defensive rating is a 117. But he's he's been good offensively. The issue for me is you've reached a point where now you need Devontae Graham to be the player that he is long term. And I'm happy for Devontae Graham. He's been absurd, the amount of off-the-dribble threes that he's hitting this year. But, you know, he could be primed for regression down the road. And if he is, you don't 
you don't have that player in Terry Rozier who can help offset that is what I think we're seeing. And so the flawed logic of getting him in the first place is still kind of at play, even though he's playing fairly well and you have Devonte Graham to lean on. Maybe the deal continued looks a little bit better because Graham never comes back down to earth and he, he makes an all-star appearance. It's all possible, but, but the deal is still not good. I had it as when I wrote about this topic, I had it as the worst deal from free agency. I've upgraded a little bit from that just because he is playing pretty well on the offensive end. Yeah, I think too, um, I wonder how differently, again, yeah, Rosier's numbers to me are a big surprise in the positive direction. Um, I wonder how much of that has to do with Graham taking on such a, you know, much bigger load than anyone expected and being so effective. I also think too that, you know, the Hornets feel like a pleasant surprise because they're 11 and 16, but, you know, their differential is terrible. It's 25th in the league. I think as regression kind of comes for them more broadly, um, we should probably expect that to also manifest specifically with Rozier, who I think is going to kind of come down a little bit too. Um, I think maybe we may trend back closer to that was an objectively bad deal, but I, yeah, I agree. I, I said last time that it's uh, one of the most surprisingly not terrible contracts signed as, you know, relative to what we thought at the time. Yeah. The, the Hornets point differential overall is just absolutely wild. And they're, they're not a team that you could say, Oh, they might have the biggest differential, like net rating differential between wins and losses because they're not, like steamrolling opponents when they win their games. And so it's just it, their losses might say more about them than not, but I think it would be, I hope this doesn't like motivate them to do anything to buy now at the trade deadline, but it would just be like hysterical to me if they fell ass backwards into a playoff spot. Oh man. I, I, I feel confident that we're not going to have to worry about that, but the idea when you said if they're a buy now or, you know, a win now buy kind of candidate at the trade deadline, I got a little shiver because that feels like, I feel like you just told the future because that is very on brand for a Hornets team that has sort of generally not made a lot of sense with its decisions. Charlotte has officially become the preeminent Kevin Love destination. Now we've spoken into existence. <laughs> oh no. Why would you say things like that? Um, I got another big deal that, again, it's kind of like the Russell deal where I'm just more worried about it or have I think it's interesting um, than it's objectively bad. And that's Porzingis, five for 158. I just, uh, I mean, the whole I'm going to take the qualifying offer was a total bluff. I think everybody knows that, Um, you know, and look, there are worse things to invest in than a 7-3 guy who can hit threes and defend the rim. Um, and is young enough to make sense alongside Doncic as your, your one, two, I just think that like looking at it now, and again, you have to think in terms of he's coming off a huge layoff, like a crazy long layoff. So if, if he looks out of rhythm, there are perfectly good explanations for that, but he's not making shots. He's defending fine. I mean, as well, really as he ever has. But the other thing about Porzingis is he always starts better than he finishes over the course of a season. So if you think that that trend will continue and he just, you know, he breaks down like he has in the past as the year wears on, his numbers decline. I mean, if this is the good portion of Porzingis' first season in Dallas playing anyway, um, that's a concern. And I think big picture, like maybe, and I think it's fair to think about Dallas this way because Doncic is that good. Maybe this is a situation where like Giannis in Milwaukee, Doncic is so good that your number two can be a Middleton type or or some combination of last year where it's like Middleton one night, Brooke Lopez makes a big impact, Brogdon makes a big impact. Maybe Dallas can take that approach and Doncic and and 
Porzingis doesn't need to be this like one, one B this like no questions asked all-star type of player that he's being compensated as if he were that maybe you get away with that. Cause Doncic is that good. But I think you, if you're looking at the, the sort of life of this contract with all the concerns you have over health and Porzingis's kind of lack of productivity to this point, um, I have a lot more concerns about it now than I did when he signed it because seeing him play and again maybe this is unfair because of the knee but seeing him play I'm just not seeing the guy that when Doncic sits you know everything's cool guys I got it or I'm going to finish us some games or I'm going to you know just take over I haven't seen that yet and I'm a little worried that we just may not get it I I think all those concerns are fair I'm inclined to maybe give him the benefit of the doubt because of the ACL injury Uh, that being said it's almost half of the passes that he's catching this year are coming from Doncic. He is shooting off those passes when he does take a field goal attempt, 35.8% on twos and 27.5% on threes. Imagine shooting that poorly off of a Doncic pass. (laughs) Maybe he's just too awed by how great all these passes are that I think that he never played with anyone who passed in New York. So maybe it's like, he's just shocked that he has the ball. I love when you support my uh, my unsupported contentions with numbers because that really yeah like it look that's the other thing is I mean Doncic is just spoon feeding guys the the skip passes he makes to the corners and you know granted Porzingis isn't there that often but the the space that Doncic creates with drives the way he just ties defenses in knots like Porzingis is gonna get and has gotten some quality looks and just has not made them so. Let's just let's let's you know let's hope that's a rhythm thing. Let's hope that's a rust thing, um, because like it's just he's got it so good with with Doncic getting all the attention. Um, it seems like he's set up to succeed, and he's really he just he just hasn't so far. It's funny though. Still, the Mavericks are winning the minutes he plays without Doncic because their bench has just been generally absurd. Yeah, they're well. That's just a Mavs thing, right? I mean, the Mavs have a million guys that if they're your sixth or seventh best player, you're in great shape. They have like, they have so many of those guys that you just, when they empty the bench, it's like, man, you know, Jalen Brunson can do a few things. And I like DeLon Wright and, you know, JJ Barea plays again now. It's it's like all these guys come in and they, you know, can even Justin Jackson, who I thought was not an NBA player uh, is making huge contributions. So I, I, I agree that like there are, and look, Dallas by some accounts is the third best team in the league right now. If you're looking at differential, but um, I don't know. Again, more concerned, I guess, than ready to say that it was a terrible signing. Another concern with him, and this is probably more of a societal concern, the, as I just dropped something that's in my hand. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have concerns about you, your motor skills. The rape allegations from him just like faded into nothingness. And this happens too often. Uh, there was the initial report, and then there was the follow-up by ESPN that says, you know, the, the woman uh, who accused him of raping her tried to extract money from the Knicks to mediate in private direct quote from that piece. I think it was a $68,000 payment. I am not, I think there's one, I don't understand why people find hard the concept to grasp that you should believe women and that you can do that and take these allegations seriously without necessarily presuming guilt. I I just don't, I don't understand why people have such a hard time straddling that line, but the fact that it disappeared, I don't know if it's because of that report. It just, it's really, it makes me really uncomfortable. And uh, there are enough people that look like me who talk about shit like this. So I don't necessarily want to make these sweeping judgments on it, but it's just, you know, even like the Rodion's Coors thing in Boston, these stories just tend to fade into nothingness, dissipate into just this, this void and not talked about. Like it's almost taboo when I feel like until we know 
of the resolution that they should absolutely be talked about and be in the public discourse. Well, and I mean, just to put the team perspective on it too, it's not a great look for the for a Mavericks organization that you know was found to have had a really toxic environment towards yeah. women, really from you know the C suite on down, you know top down kind of toxicity. So, yeah, I don't know. That's I don't know how you factor that into the deal, but certainly like it's it's not a positive. I guess I feel comfortable saying it's just something saying. like that because there's been no further reporting. So I don't. I'm not presuming his guilt here, but to invest that much money when there's something like this going on, obviously they have more information than we do. I just don't even think that was talked about or referenced enough when he initially signed the deal. It's just like this news, I think initially dropped end of March, early April. And then the second week of April is like the last time we heard if that anything like substantial about it, just, it's just, it's concerning to me. Uneasy, I think is the word. Yeah, totally fair. Totally fair. Are we, do we, are we into your, have we cracked your top tier yet? Um, I still have two left in tier two, if not great. Okay, well, let, let's hear a couple of those because I'm running short on uh, on bad deals. Uh, Tyus Jones. Mm, rel- interesting. Relatively small deal, uh, but at three years, $26.4 million, $23.9 million guaranteed. Isn't it kind of a fair question to say, wouldn't three years, $28.1 million for DeLon Wright been a better investment for them? I just, well, to me, yeah, I love Wright, but but continue. I just, I'm, I'm honestly like he's being outplayed by this season overall has been outplayed by uh, DeAnthony Melton. You know, he's shooting 44 percent on his twos. Maybe that's like not too much of an issue. Uh, he's under 30 percent on catch and shoot threes this season. Uh, the last time I checked, he had a higher turnover rate than than usage rate. I think, and so I'm going to confirm whether that's true right now all right that's evened out 15.6 percent turnover rate to 16.6 percent usage one yeah but one look at his career too sorry i'm going to cut you off but like and, and and this isn't new if you look if you look at his past years as a rookie 16 turnover 16.1 usage second year 16 turnover 13.6 usage also higher in his th- i mean this is like this is who Last he year is was the outlier right his one it's basically one-to-one for his career 13.1 turnover rate to 14.1 usage and i just don't you know, for someone who's not going to get to the foul line a ton, who's really not going to get to the rim a bunch, it was just a very odd in- investment. And I guess they're just, we're kind of banking on his defensive bulldogginess, which is kind of fine, but you could have gotten that from DeLon Wright, who's not posting a 43.8 true shooting percentage. So uh, <laughs> that's just, that's where I'm at. It seems like he's perked up in smaller minutes um, since I initially had him in this tier, but I haven't moved him. I'm just, when you look at how similar the money was to DeLon Wright, did they just not have the, the chance to keep him? Did they not like his fit alongside John Moran? I, uh, the, the money that they guaranteed him to me, I don't know if he's your backup point guard or if he's going to be your third point guard or just your fourth guard in general, however you want to spin this, fifth guard in general. I, I want to know who would take on Tyus Jones' contract right now. It feels like it has the potential to become that like Cristiano Felicio level deal where it's, oh, no one wants to touch that even though it's kind of a small salary. It's interesting too. I think I, I I feel like I've overlooked this deal too because you're selling it really well as a bad deal. Like from Memphis Memphis's perspective, I think this deal only looks good if Jones substantially outperforms what he's done to this point, which is always the sign of a bad deal. And like the you know I don't know what that even really looks like and how valuable that even is to a team in Memphis's position. I guess he's young enough. This is his age twenty three season where. You know, if he had popped this year, you know, you've got a backup, you've got a quality backup point guard for John Morant, who you probably can't play with Morant, that is paid like a quality backup point guard. So 
your your hot your upside play in terms of the value of this deal is basically to break even. And the downside, which I think we're seeing, is that you've got a grossly overpaid third point guard. Um, so yeah, I, I think definitely from from like the team composition standpoint, there was just very little chance this was going to be good uh, from like from the moment that that they signed it. And you can still kind of you know you, you have leeway if you're the the Grizzlies because John Morant's on his rookie scale deal as expensive as those can become, but like you only have so much leeway there. And so it, yeah. it was just, I, I wasn't crazy about the deal to begin with. I definitely didn't think it would end up looking this bad. He's, I also didn't realize this. I was looking this up. The Grizzlies are averaging 0. 0.67 points per possession when he runs a pick and roll. That's uh, in the, that seems bad. Era. Yeah, that's pretty bad. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, to I, wrap up my tier two. So we don't uh, run out of your thoughts. Sorry to interject there. I have Corey Joseph. Just it's it's another situation where it's three years, thirty seven point two million dollars, but it's really two years, twenty seven million dollars. The way you look at it, my response is I don't care. Uh, that's way too much money for a backup point guard. <laughs> however, you're spinning it, and I know he's been thrust into a a more prominent role uh, without De'Aaron Fox and the Kings' offense. So somewhat surprisingly to me, at least, he he has been six point four points per hundred possessions better with him on the floor. Uh, with the Aaron Fox out, which is the second highest offensive rating differential on the team. And so it's it's more than just noise of him playing with a starting lineup that has Rachon Holmes in it. So, but the number is just like, this is a guy who Indiana Pacers fans know all too well that he can just disappear on offense or he's going to take uh, just, he's going to take threes and like, all of a sudden miss them. He shot, he shot relatively well from three in 16, 17 with Toronto, 17, 18 with Indiana. He's at 27.7% from three now, just absolute disastrous there. And he is someone who has a higher turnover rate than usage rate right now. 15.5 turnover rate to 13.4 usage. That's not exactly been his MO. He's always been relative to his usage. You've been uncomfortable with his turnover rate, but it's never been like this. So to, if you want to look at it as two years and $27 million, that's fine. You're now paying $13.5 million per year on an annual basis for a backup point guard who I'm not sure how much he helps your team, even when he's at full, full strength. He just wasn't having a profound defensive impact on them uh, to begin with. And so that has a lot to do with the Kings personnel. And so I, look, maybe he will help you there when you are at full strength. He's playing against more bench players, but that number, even on a short-term basis was just uh, at the time, I understood the Dwayne Dedman gamble, and I actually get to him, but I did not understand the Corey Joseph gamble. Yeah, so I'm I'm looking at my list, and I realize now I'm out of guys, but I it, I, I have uh, I want to give you the because uh, I'm out here closer to Sacramento, and I can give you the defensive Corey Joseph take that is bubbling up because there, believe it or not, there is a Corey Joseph debate taking place on, on the, the west coast of our country. Um, basically the thinking is, and I don't agree with this. I'm with you. I think you just statistically, like you're just paying too much for what he does. The thinking is, and his defenders would say, well, look, you know, if, if you got to guard James Harden tonight, he's the guy that's going to do it and he's going to make him work. You know, all the things that you would say about Corey Joseph that I think are true, where he does play hard. He will willingly take on a difficult matchup at more than one position that has value. He's viewed as a steadying influence and all this stuff. But like the, the numbers just aren't there. So I, I'm not really that receptive to that argument, but they're definitely, I'm really saying this more to alert you to the fact that in fact, people are arguing about Corey Joseph, <laughs> which, which hey, is kind of ridiculous. Time to vote to argue about Corey Joseph, more power to you. Well, you know who it is too. And sometimes we discount this, 
um, and maybe we shouldn't, it's a lot of the guys that are close to the team, like the beat guys are, are really kind of on the Joseph, uh, support Joseph bandwagon. And I think sometimes those guys do get a better sense of like what a guy's value is to a team dynamic. Um, but it's still a tough sell for me because like you, as you outlined, um, it's just a lot of money for a guy that on a very good team, um, is, you know, you, you probably don't want to pay more than about half of what he's making. Yeah. And, you know, you can be out of players because I don't have a new player. My tier one potentially detrimental deal only has company of one right now. And it is Dwayne Dedman of the Sacramento yeah. Kings. Uh, I initially, I'm eating crow here. This is not something I was on top of. Three years, 40 million. It's 26.7 million guaranteed. So you could look at it as he's a little bit cheaper than Corey Joseph uh, if you want to. Two years, 26.7 million. I liked the signing because I thought there was enough evidence that his floor spacing was real. He was hitting above the break threes last yeah. year. So, and ju- just for kicks, and I wrote about this leading into free agency, Giannis Antetokounmpo was the only player who matched Denman's defensive rebound, steal, and block percentages while making at least 25 three-pointers last year. That's like, and he was on the right side of 30 entering free agency. I thought this was an, an overpay probably, but I thought it was a good signing by the Kings. He's not even playing anymore. Right. Three straight DNPs as we record this. So I I don't really know. He, he's forgetting to take off his warm-ups before he checks into the game. I don't know if you saw that video of him earlier in the season. This is just complete backfired, and it looks not as bad because you have the Rachon Holmes contract, but you know now you're basically looking at, well, you're kind of paying, if Dwayne Dedman isn't going to play, you're kind of paying like $20 million a year for Rachon Holmes and what he's bringing. And also your center situation is not exactly settled. You declined your fourth-year option on Harry Giles. I kind of feel like they view Marvin Bagley as a four. And so, you you know, you have – they can run interesting lineups. They have plenty of front-court talent, which is why I was almost a little bit puzzled that they they signed both Holmes and Deadman. But if they were as low on Giles as it turns out that they were, that makes it a little bit more understandable. But you have Bielitsa, you have Bagley. The the center situation is just far from settled, though, behind Rich on Holmes. And now to waste – at least two years of that kind of money in, in Dwayne Dedman, that's potentially detrimental to me. And he's the Kings to me would be an interesting Kevin Love destination. I know it's not going to help their defense, but when you're looking at salary matching, yeah, you know what? You could go the Trevor Ariza route to use as like the salary anchor and include other stuff. But now you can't even get rid of Dwayne Dedman's deal probably because that requires a sweetener by itself to get off of your books. Yeah, he's such an interesting case because I was with you and I think everybody kind of agreed, you know, he seemed like such a stable, solid move that you were overpaying by like maybe 20% for. But like the fit made sense if you thought that, like I, I kind of always thought that, well, if Bagley's going to succeed, it needs to be as a five in the modern NBA. But I think we're seeing sort of the pendulum swift ba- shift back a little bit to where you can get away with him as a four maybe more often now. Um, but he's barely played this year. So, you know, kind of a moot point, but like, if you go by the idea that, uh, it takes, you know, this accepted idea that it takes 750 career attempts for three point percentage to stabilize coming into this year, Deadman had like 350 or something around there. So, and they were all, but one came in the previous two seasons. He took one, three and 14, 15, which I'm just going to guess was a heave with the magic. So like the idea that he was a stable, safe bet as the type of player the Kings envisioned him being. Um, yeah, kind of a mistake, I think, or, you know, a little, uh, a little bit, uh, overestimated the certainty of his production, I think for sure. Yeah. I definitely would not have anticipated him being in my eyes as of right now, past the NBA season quarter poll, 
the worst contract from 2019 free agency. Never would have guessed that in a zillion years. No, no way. The opposite, if anything. Uh, anything else to add to this? Do you have any spicy trade deadline predictions before I get you out of here? I don't know, but can we agree that Kevin Love is the guy that doesn't like John Beeline? Just wildly speculate that that's the case? That has to be it, right? He's yeah. the one that's complaining. The video that was circulating around where he just – it was like – it was really like a 12-second violation, I feel like. I mean, the only reason he got called for it was he drew attention to himself. So. <laughs> uh, what, about, also, what about Tristan Thompson, though, basically coming out and saying – like he would like fight whoever it was that said it. That's even better to me. I love that. So that's either, so either that's true or Tristan Thompson is an incredible cover up artist. And he's the one Ooh. that he's secretly the one that is trying to get beeline out of there. I don't think that's true, but if it was, I would have a lot of respect for him. Yeah. That's actually, I didn't think of it that way. That's fantastic. It was, it was Tristan Thompson who was part of the leagues, but then he like goes on the defensive or the offensive, excuse me. That's, that, that's what you do now. You accuse someone else of what you're actually doing. That's how, that's how America works, Dan. Is I'll, I'll leave it with this question. Then. Is Kevin Love on Cleveland after the trade deadline? I'm only asking this now. We have almost two months until it, but it's the official start of trade season almost as we record this. So do you think Kevin Love is still in Cleveland after the trade deadline? I'm going to say no. Um, that's a lot of money to move, and he's just – it's a tough player to move. But I think if Cleveland is serious about like a long-term strategy, which they got to be hiring a, a college coach you know, for developmental purposes, um, I think it makes it, – it's just – they're going to have to take 50 cents on the dollar, but I think they probably do move him. I just don't know where he goes. I know Portland's been the reflexive answer, but defense is their problem, even if they get Zach Collins back. And who knows what Nurkic is going to look like when he comes back. Maybe you view this as a move for next year if you get him. But they're also so, after the, the Rodney Hood injury, which he tore his Achilles after we named him one of the best contracts for right. 2019 free agency, uh, you're so wing depleted now. And so you can't, you know, now it's almost you have to trade Whiteside in that Kevin Love deal. You could have built some stuff around Bazemore, but you almost can't. Bazemore hasn't been good, but you almost can't afford to lose him because you're so light on wings. And if they're going to make a trade aimed at doing something this season, it needs to be with someone who would defend wings. And so I'd be, if I were Portland, I'd be more inclined to go all in on an Aaron Gordon trade, even though he's not a wing, he could defend them, than I would a Kevin Love trade. Could, could I talk you into Phoenix with Tyler Johnson's salary and so, as the kind of the ballast and you throw in some other stuff and, and, and a pick or two maybe? Or I don't know if it'd take a pick or two, but I could see, the, you know, the Suns want to make the playoffs. They, you know, I don't think they can count on Aaron Baines making every three he takes going forward. Um, I, it, I could just see the Suns kind of, you can't ever rule out the Suns making a bad short-term decision, even with new management and stuff. So I could see that being the type of team that would think that Love is the guy that, you know, hey, he's going to crack our playoff drought. Um, you know, he could fit here with Booker and Rubio can set him up and, you know, played with Rubio before. I, I, I could see that as like a, you know, these are all long shots, obviously, but that one kind of makes some sense to me. Yeah, I could see it. It's just with Dario Sarge playing better, Cam Johnson's been, I don't know if you call him a surprise, but he's been pretty good for them. Uh and Kelly Oubre Jr. has been so good. Mikael Bridges is perking up. And you have those guys, all those guys can play some four. And then, you know, if you put Kevin Love at the four with DeAndre Ayton, how many points are you giving up? Oh, a lot. <laughs> a Love, whole lot. But... Love Baines, though, is interesting. But then you run into the issue. So you have Kevin Love. Dario Saric, unless you move him as far as that deal, is going to be a restricted free agent. Aaron Baines is going to be a free agent. This team gets, like, super expensive really quick if you want to bring the core back. And if you lose Baines that probably compromises your defense unless Aiton really makes a defensive leap when he returns from his suspension. Yeah. The only thing I'd say is that now is the time to trade Baines because he's playing so far over his head. Um, and just like, 
he, he, I, he's only five, 5.4 million this year. So it's not like his expiring deal is like a huge relief to, to Cleveland in theory in this deal. But like, I mean, Baines is just, he's not going to shoot like this going forward. And I, I understand he improves your defense and, you know, he make toughens up a team that, you know, Aiton isn't the toughest guy underneath, but like long-term, I don't think Baines is, I, if you're the Suns, I don't think you want to pay Baines' next contract because you're going to be heavily invested in Aiton as your five going forward. And you're going to have to pay for a, like a Vucevic situation to a much less, you know, less significant degree of you're paying Baines for a career year in theory. Um, you know, when he's not at an age where you can count on continued growth. We talked a lot about the Suns and Cavaliers trading basketball players, which is not what I expected from this podcast. <laughs> yeah, shout out to us. Little Suns and Cavs talk for you. Grant, uh, thank you as always for hopping on. It's amazing that we went longer on the worst contracts than the best ones. I guess those just require more justifications whenever you're going a little bit negative on a player, though. If you Negativity have- sells. Yeah, that's true, too. Uh, we're clicks we're trying to get clicks on our podcast the only reason we did that clearly uh if you guys are not following grant on twitter uh low volume high efficiency tweeter grant hughes you can follow him on twitter at gt underscore hughes he writes for bleach report uh is great so read his stuff over there thank you so much for coming on as per usual and i'm sure i'll be pestering you again in the near future my pleasure anytime Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.